Hey awesome people, a huge welcome to the 11th episode of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Karim Al Ansari, the 2019 Australian Youth Representative to the United Nations. Karim does go into detail about what the role entails, but as a brief introduction, a significant part of the role is Karim completing a listening tour where he and his team travels all around Australia meeting with young people to really give them a chance to voice the issues that are most important to them. The program has been running for the last 20 years, so it was really interesting hearing Karim's thoughts on what directions the program should take this year. We hope you're all just as inspired as we were after speaking with Karim. So my name's Karim. I am currently Australia's youth representative to the UN for 2019 and I am deeply passionate about building the capacity of young people and seeing that they have a meaningful chance to contribute to decision making and I'm generally also quite passionate about solving social problems. Where did that sort of um, passion of yours come from? Like was there like a pivotal moment or was it sort of like an accumulation of experiences? There wasn't like one moment of epiphany where I was like this is what I want to do. Like, it, it, like it, it's nice if it happens that way, but it, it never really seems to. Well, maybe for some people, but not for me in particular. I suppose, like, I've, I've always been generally interested in solving problems since I was quite young. And, like, I studied at school a lot of subjects, which sort of the, the subject matter was very big picture. So international relations, you know, legal studies, economics, these things where you're asking big questions and the ramifications of decisions have large ripples throughout society so that, that sort of piqued my interest and like I was never great at maths or science so like equations and you know calculus never quite resonated with me and for some people it does and that's fantastic but I never quite got that bug but for me you know studying that it was always I suppose like in the back of my mind any decision that I made I was always thinking about what's the big picture of this and like uh, this deep-seated desire that I've always had to change the world for the better in some way or another. And I, you know, a lot of us have that, but we just don't know how to make it happen, how to do it. And that's like usually the hardest part of figuring out what do I actually want to do with my life is, you know, I want to do something that I'm deeply passionate about. I want to do something that, I, that I'm going to be excited to get up for every morning. But, you know, where do I start? But, you know, to answer your question, I think, it's been cumulative. So I've had experiences. I've been lucky, really lucky, to have exposure to a lot of different experiences. So I went to a great school with, you know, a lot of opportunities, like intercultural opportunities. I went to a school called Wesley College, and they have this really unique program where they have this studio school in the Northern Territory, in the Kimberley. And there's this essentially like a cultural exchange program where they'll send students from Wesley into this studio school to work um, on community projects, working directly with young Indigenous people, learning about their culture and, you know, young Indigenous people can also learn about some things relevant to culture in Melbourne and then they have the opportunity as well to come and study at Wesley. So it, it was a really nice thing. And so, you know, my school had things like that that I had exposure to from quite a young age. So I learnt about, you know, some of the systemic socioeconomic problems associated with rural communities. I learnt about social impact in general. Um, and that, that's, that's where I probably caught the bug. But since then, you know, I went to uni, I studied arts, 
and I got involved in volunteer work and it, and it was just sort of this cumulative process of this is pretty cool, I feel pretty great about what I'm doing. I'm making no money, but <laughs> you know, I'm feeling good about it generally. I just want to know if you give us a bit more of an introduction of how the UN Youth Representative role actually works. Yeah, so the Youth Representative Program is a annual program. It's been running for, it's in its 21st year now, so it's been running for 20 years. And it's a partnership between the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Australia, which is the Foreign Ministry of Australia, and a non-profit called UN Youth Australia, which is a youth-led organisation and aims to build the capacity and influence of young people in Australia, it's, it's generally an education organisation, so they run a series of um, education-focused events throughout the year, um, teaching young people about global issues, international affairs, they do like a model UN type thing, public speaking competitions. It's an incredible network of about a thousand young volunteers in every state and territory around the country. So effectively how the program works is Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and UN Youth Australia will pick one young person under the age of 25 to represent young people at the United Nations. So what that kind of looks like is the first six months of the year, the youth representative will embark on a nationwide listening tour where they will travel to every state and territory, meeting with young people, running consultations with young people in schools, community groups, detention centres, universities, TAFEs, you name it. Everything. general sort of goal is to engage with and better understand the issues that are most important to young people in Australia and to then advocate on behalf of young people to our leaders here at home, uh, at all levels of government, and then on the international stage in New York at the UN. That's the sort of high-level goal. Within that is, you know, there's questions around how do we make it more accessible to more people, how do we get to some of the places that are a little bit more expensive or logistically challenging to get to? How do we include minorities? And how do we give a voice to the people who may not traditionally have one or have opportunities to a program like this? And I think, you know, a question that's also in the back of my mind is how do we actually have some tangible impact from a policy change reform perspective? That's one of the goals. It's not the only goal, but you know, it's one of the long-term goals that we'd love to see is we, we will publish a report at the end of this program which will summarise the year's findings, all of the data that I've collected in, as a part of these consultations. And that report will be delivered to members of government, uh, policy makers, decision makers, in both the public and private sphere. And the hope is that they'll take those learnings on board and, and try to refine or develop policy that better reflects young people and their wishes and their values. But as you can imagine, that's a pretty challenging task. Uh, and over 20 years, you know, we've, we've tried to do that, but I think, you know, there is some room for us to think about how do we tailor our approach lead to a more effective outcome. But yeah, generally speaking, the consultations are incredib an incredible opportunity to not only meet over 15,000 young people and talk to them directly, but also collect some really interesting data on the issues, the challenges that young people are seeing, how they see their future, what ideas they have for solving those problems, all of those sorts of things. And there are a lot of consultations of young people in Australia. There's, you know, organisations like Mission Australia, they did a huge consult of young people last year and, and you know, it, it, they're massive. But ultimately, what distinguishes this program is the consults because there are, there are very, very few programs out there that will actually be able to devote a six-month period mm -hmm. to going out and talking to young people face-to-face. -face. And that qualitative aspect of the program is a really important part of it and, and what sort of makes it very, very different and, and something I'm really excited about as well. 
Yeah. Would you mind sharing some of the challenges that you want to hopefully remedy? Part of my whole approach to this role, and you know, when, when I went into my interview, this was my sort of thing, was this program's done an incredible job of identifying what are the issues that young people really care about, what are the challenges that young people are facing at the moment. It doesn't, it, it hasn't though, done, done as good a job of looking at the solutions and the ideas that young people have to actually solve those problems. And to me, that's kind of the missing link in this equation is, yes, we can identify the solutions to policymakers. We can go to them and say, mental health and wellbeing was the top issue raised by young people last year, which it was by far. Mm. Then, you know, once they see that, there, you know, there are other reports that reveal the same information to verify that. Once they see that, what do they do? We haven't actually really given them a blueprint for that answer. So what I'd love to do this year is sort of take it to that next step and look at, you know, within mental health, what are some of the solutions that young people have for solving that problem? What are some of the ideas that they have for solving that problem? Breaking down its component parts and looking at those specific challenges. That's been my approach. So it's a hard thing to do in, you know, your, your average consultation will be about an hour. So we're trying to stretch that out this year to allow for more, you know, more time to be able to dissect some of these issues in a, in a more sophisticated way but you have to it's a balancing act because you don't want to you know make it too long where people are starting to get bored and, and are disengaging with the content but you know that that for me is, is probably one of the big challenges another one is unfortunately money <laughs> so coming back to that again you know this program is funded entirely by supporters and donations so you know DFAT, essentially our relationship with the Department of Foreign Affairs is that they will cover the New York component of the program. So in September, I travel to New York and work on behalf of young people at the United Nations as a member of the Australian mission to the UN. And I'll deliver a speech on behalf of young Australians and work with other youth representatives. So that's sort of a two month long process and that's covered entirely by the Department of Foreign Affairs. But this tour is effectively the onus on, is on us for making this financially viable. So we'll go to, you know, potential partners, organisations that might be interested in engaging young people, NGOs, you know, businesses, government, and we'll say to them, would you be interested in supporting us as a sponsor? And, you know, we've been lucky enough to get some support in the past, but that's probably one of the greatest challenges is, you know, that sponsorship side of stuff. And it's, it's never the funnest part of it, but it's a necessary part of it. So. You know, uh, that's what I'm focusing on at the moment. So the more, like, we don't need a huge amount. The more money we can raise, the more we can do. That's generally why we're trying to, you know, make this a priority is, you know, the more impact we can make, the more places we can go, the more young people we can reach. And, you know, I don't take a salary. It's a completely volunteer role, a voluntary role. So all the money that we raise will be going directly into the program. Looking at towards the end of the program and the impact you want to be having, how do you guys envisage trying to track that impact? Something that has been a difficult thing with this program is the impact you can't necessarily quantify. So, you know, if I were to go to a sponsor through Live Below the Line, I could say to them, with the money that you're giving us, we will be able to, you know, provide your sponsor X amount of young people We'd be able to provide training to X amount of teachers. We'd be able to build X amount of schools. You can give them a figure. This program, it's very different because it's, you know, the benefits are a much longer term thing. It, it, we're taking the long view here. We're talking about building the capacity, the voice of young people. We're going to places where they might not 
feel like their voices matter, places where they don't feel like they can contribute. And like for me, it is so important to use this program as an opportunity to go to those places and to provide young people with the chance to actually directly speak to their leaders about what, what is most important to them. But, you know, in terms of quantifying that, it becomes really hard. So, you know, over the 20 years, we've had specific, like, wins that we've, you know, one, one of the former youth reps was able to close down a detention centre that was, you know, unethical in its practices by visiting and, and bringing that into the, you know, national spotlight media and whatnot. Last year, we, we had some political support from a number of MPs ac across the political spectrum. We had the the program was tabled in the House of Representatives. There was a Senate motion passed endorsing the program and its findings. I mean, these are more symbolic things, not necessarily tangible. It's really hard to it's really hard to point to a particular policy decision and say we had a hand in that because once we make our recommendations, it's really up to decision makers how they want to interpret those and what they do after that. I think the best we can do is to make sure those recommendations are usable, that they're practical, that they're realistic, like idealistic to some extent, but also not overly idealistic where they're not going to be taken seriously and comprehensive enough that we lay out some very specific things that they could change today that will improve outcomes for young people. For me, that, that's the best that we can do, but we're not policy experts. We're not qualified to, to implement the policy. So we, we, we pass the baton to the people who ultimately are responsible for doing that. I guess what was your journey into this role? I'd heard about the program for a number of years and it was always in the back of my mind as something I would love to do. And I always kind of thought, oh, that's nuts. I'm unqualified. There's no way I could do that. It is a tough role in that you do have to dedicate an entire year to do it. And I never really had a year to be able to devote entirely to it. But, you know, I, I went to Oak Tree. I did my time there. I went to another... NGO after that, looking at building platforms for young people in the Asia Pacific to participate in politics and public policy and decision making. I finished that and was looking for something else and, and this popped up on my radar and I, the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, you're probably not going to get this, but throw your hat in the ring and see how you go. And I did and, you know, I, I did my first interview again, thought I bombed it. <laughs> well, there's always that uh, imposter syndrome. That, that's a real thing and it exists, but I think... For me, the, the advice I would give people is back yourself. You never know. You, you don't necessarily... Yeah, people are their, their worst critic, always. Mm. You, you don't know your own value until you put yourself in a position where you're challenging yourself, where you're a little bit uncomfortable, and you, like, you will ultimately surprise yourself most of the time. But anyway, in terms of the process, I went through an interview, did a phone interview, another interview, and then eventually made the final five and, and went for like a panel interview in Sydney and that was pretty intense. There was like a media component. You had to do a mock workshop and another mock interview and eventually I got the call offering me the role which was really exciting. But uh, yeah, look, it, it wasn't something I expected to get. I've never gone into or walked out of an interview, interview thinking, oh wow, I really nailed that. That, that <laughs> job is mine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think like the difference is that I gave it a go. And if there's something that you're passionate about, something that you'd love to do, no matter how scary it might be, just give it a go and, and throw yourself into it. Take it with both hands. And, and as I said, like you will often surprise yourself. I just want to go back to the diversity piece. In terms of consultation process, how do you kind of decide like, oh, we're going to go here and we want to talk to these young people? Well, because this, this program is entirely run by volunteers, 
we're limited by the networks that we have and the capacity that our volunteers have, the time that they can give to this. There's a committee that works with me on this program and it's like one or two people from every state and territory that give their time to help me book consultations in their area. But in terms of like thinking about that diversity piece, we have like a strategy for that, that we've, we've been thinking about that the last you know, few months is how do we do this better? So I'm reaching out to a number of organisations already working with a particular group of young people. So I'm working, I've reached out to the Youth Disability Advocacy Service here in Victoria, the Koori Youth Council, Headspace, the Man Cave dealing with, with masculinity among young boys. You know, organisations with their niche and their focus who have experience in dealing with a particular group of young people. I think we've been focusing on building partnerships with them and they can, you know, open up a lot of doors for us and talk to organisations, give us names of people who we would normally not have, have thought of, which can be really useful. I've also um, taken upon myself to do training, disability awareness training, uh, Indigenous cultural competency training. And again, all the organisations that provide those trainings can be really useful in, in helping to open up networks and, and you know, they, they know what's going on in the sector and the industry. So capitalising on that, I've been like, a lot of my job at the moment has just been shooting out emails to people. Just, you know, yeah. would you love to catch up for a coffee? I'd love to hear more about this. You know, I'd love to learn more about what you're doing. And, and those can be sponsorship-related related conversations. They can be consultation-related conversations. Or they can be just general conversations about how do we make this better and more inclusive. But, you know, we, we are really thinking about, how, about making this a lot more accessible to a lot more young people. I think that our approach has been keep it at the front of our mind when we're booking consults, you know, what group of young people are we talking to here and how does this inform our diversity piece? Like, our, like we'll be looking at it cumulatively, like in, in New South Wales. A lot of this happens fairly ad hoc. So, for example, I'm going to New South Wales in about two weeks. That's my first stop. And so the team is working on booking two weeks' worth of consults for me. So we'll look at that two weeks and say, OK, we've got three inner-city schools we need to step up our rural engagement a little bit more. We've got, you know, we're talking to a particular group of young people, whether it is a particular age group or whatever it is. We can identify where the gaps are and try and target those more specifically. I was a little bit surprised when hearing a bit more about the program because I think at the back of my mind, I always assumed, well, one, that the role was paid. Is there any plans or anything to get a bit more, maybe even government support or funding? Our partnership with DFAT, we're in a pretty good place at the moment. And we're sort of at the point where we'll probably approach them next year with a proposal of stepping up their, their support. But, you know, I mean, that really just depends on their operating budget, what their particular priorities are at any given time or any given year. They've been a great, you know, a great partner in the past and they've really supported a lot of it. Outside of DFAT, though, we have been thinking about approaching other government departments that are relevant, so say the, the Department of Education mm. or the Department of Youth Affairs. In, in Victoria, we don't have one at the national level. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah, no, that's, well, that was one of the recommendations <laughs> from last year is we, we need one. <laughs> but yeah, look, long-term partnerships are uh, something we're really working on. We've actually got a, we've developed a new executive role within UN Youth Australia exclusively looking at long-term development and partnerships. Mm. So, you know, we're thinking about it, but it, these things do take time. You know, to get a major supporter, it's a lot of legwork and, and, and a lot of... It's a long process. But, we, you know, we've, we've been talking to universities as well, think tanks, other organisations that are working with young people. And that's always in the back of our mind, is that long-term relationship. And, and if that can come out of those conversations, then that's amazing. But, you know, at the front of my mind is always 
you know, let's talk about this year. <laughs> yeah. Let's get enough money for this year first and then, you know, we'll talk about long-term stuff after. But yeah, it's something we're thinking about and, and that, that's what really baffles me is what we've been able to do in the last 20 years with limited resources, you know, volunteers, everyone's under 25. We've, we've reached over about 200,000 young people face-to-face and last year we reached over 15,000 directly. Like it's the largest, I probably shouldn't mention this earlier, but it's actually the largest face-to-face consultation of young people in Australia. And for young people to pull that off year on year, I think that's a pretty, not only like an incredible thing, but a, a testament to what young people are capable of if, if given the opportunity to do something great. Is there much of an involvement of like say previous youth reps? Yeah, so I had a pretty comprehensive handover with Amos Washington, who was the youth rep for last year, and he, he was incredible. He sat me down for a good few hours, listened to everything I had to say, all of my anxieties about the role, and was really supportive and lovely. And he sent me sort of all of the resources that I'd need and very specifically what sort of things I need to be thinking about and when. And we've been in communication and contact, you know, over the last few months, and I'll continue to, to reach out to him if there's a particular thing that I need advice on. I think this, and, and I've spoken also to Paige Burton, who did it in 2017, and I've spoken to a few other youth reps who have done it in the past as well. I think that's really important because we want this program to be a iterative process where we're not just reinventing the wheel every year. Mm. We want to build on what's been done in the past, and we want to sort of keep that momentum going. And that's something I think, you know, that, that's definitely in the front of my mind because I think Paige and Amos, you know, to, to, they were the last two did an incredible job of establishing what those issues are. And Paige exploded the program out. She went to every single electorate in the country and consulted with a record number of people. And that was a like that was incredible. So her whole, whole thing was, you know, well, what would Australia look like if our leaders saw young people for their complexity? And so I think like her whole consultation was representing that complexity. Amos took that and, and you know, refined it further. And then I want to take that and as I was saying before, focus on the solutions, focus on the ideas. That is like part of a, a wider strategy of how do we continue to make this program better and better and how do we continue to build momentum and achieve our ultimate goal of policy improving reform and policy development that works better for young people. I was curious in terms of how you guys are approaching kind of your digital strategy? Typically the data collection is both qualitative and quantitative. So we recognise that we can't go out and meet with every young person in Australia. It's just not feasible, not possible for a human being. So what we do is we have online a survey that any young person in the country can fill out. And, that, you know, it's, it's a brief survey, but it covers most of, most of the things that we'll be asking in the consultations. And we'll use that to inform our overarching data collection and ultimately the report alongside our qualitative stuff. That is like an accessibility piece. In terms of like our digital presence outside of that, you mean like social media and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we have like a Facebook page. That's that's our biggest platform at the moment. We've got just over 10,000 subscribers yeah. and it's growing, which is exciting. So I'll, I'll use that to like post regular updates throughout the tour, like some funny photos or whatever. It's a great way to sort of share what's going on throughout the year and keep people engaged with the program and, you know, keep people engaged with the content and the stories as well. So we had this page actually established this Humans of New York type mm. thing where it was like, called it like the photo series. You'd have an opening question, which um, was like, I wish my government knew. And then the young person finishes the sentence. 
and then we take a photo of them and we post it online, we include it in the report. That's a great way to share stories and to share, you know, to, go, to dive more deeply into the personal narrative. A lot of youth consultation, I touched on this before, can be quite cold. You know, tick this box if you care about this or, you know, tick the box that, that most accurately represents your view. Whereas this is a much more nuanced, much more, you know, a, a much, much more comprehensive look at the person. Some of these paragraphs are really long because people really want to share a lot. So yeah, our, our goal is, you know, as I said, policy change and reform is a goal, but it's not the only goal. Another goal is to share what I've learned throughout the year with other people to create bridges between young people in a particular area and another young, you know, young people in another area to build their networks, their contacts, to share all the wonderful things that young people are doing around the country and have it be a community where young people can come together and share ideas and collaborate. I think that that to me is a arguably more important function of the program. Yeah. When you're pitching for funding or going out to sponsors, mm. are you typically looking for like a big dollar figure from sponsors or are you thinking this is more of a grassroots campaign, like some bloke donates $50 here, or yeah. what's the... So a bit of both. I think it, it depends what kind of partner you're approaching. So if I was going to a big company, it would be, we'd, we'd make the ask a little bit stronger. So we'd typically give them a prospectus with a tiered sponsorship outline or whatever, which sort of will give a chart, and in that chart is the different levels of sponsorship and what you get for that sponsorship. So, you know, if you donate $2,000, you'll get this. If you donate five, if you donate 10, if you donate 25, it's the top one. It, you, you have to tailor it, I think, to the institution. So if I was going to a place like Melbourne Uni, for example, or, you know, any university, you would think about why something like this might be valuable to them. So thinking about the data that we're collecting around how young people see their education system, what kind of stuff they want to study at uni, what subjects they're interested in, what, they're, what kind of work they want to do in the future, all of those questions are really useful to a university, thinking about curriculum and thinking about how they're actually educating young people in their institution. So that, that can be good. Uh, another thing, obviously, is we can put the sponsor on our marketing material and we give the brands exposure, that kind of stuff, because we're dealing with a lot of people, young people directly. But we're careful not to compromise the integrity of the program, so we don't want to, you know, sell ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are realities around that. So we're trying to get creative with how we pitch ourselves and what the ask is, but also what we can offer and what's valuable to them. Yeah. You know, so if we go to an employer, we'll be thinking about you know, a lot of big corporates nowadays are thinking about millennials. How do we keep them for more than two years? Yeah. yeah. And how do we build organisations and communities where young people actually can thrive and want to come to work and will have a good experience in their work life? So we can get data on, you know, when you because we consult with people anywhere from 10 years old to 25 years old. So when we're talking to people between sort of 20 and 25, a lot of the issues that tend to come up are around you know, education and work and how am I going to find a job and all that kind of stuff. So we can collect data around what kind of a workplace young people want to see, what would make them want to come to work every day, what sort of things they'd want to be tackling in the workplace. All those sorts of things can be useful as well. But yeah, look, we also, I should probably mention this, I should definitely mention this, every year we set up a GoFundMe as well, which is designed effectively to, to, to target that other sort of yeah. fundraising 
method, which is those smaller donations from people who just like the program and believe in what we're doing and can give five or ten bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. We haven't set it up yet, but that's going to be something we will probably do in about a week. And we'll launch that on our social media. And throughout the year, if people can make any kind of contribution, we'd be so, so grateful for that. Because, you know, it's a combination of our partnerships, but also those sorts of methods of fundraising that that help us to achieve our fundraising goal, which is about $40,000 this year, yeah. give or take. What are some sort of strategies during these consultations where you encourage uh, young people to engage with um, politics in a different way that's more accessible? Throughout the year, I'll be trying to establish relationships with political leaders with the goal of trying to not only tell them about what we're doing and have us be on their radar as a program, but also try and create opportunities for young people to directly engage with their leaders. So we'll set up in the report back period, which is when I come back from New York and write up the report and we're sharing the findings of the report, we'll set up meetings with MPs and young people in their electorate. We set up like a good 20 or 30 of those meetings last year, which is pretty incredible. There are some that are still happening. So that's one way of doing it, but obviously that's only for like a few young people. For everyone else, we'll be going to, you know, as a big part of our consultations, we'll be looking at those other forms of political participation. So, you know, yes, how do I write a letter to my local representative, but also how do I campaign about an issue that I care about? How do I, you know, use opportunities online to create a discourse around this particular issue? How do I fundraise for this particular thing? How do I solve a local community problem? How do I mobilise a community around solving that problem? How do I mobilise others? I think like there was this really interesting video that I saw a while ago, which was, I've forgotten what it's called, it was like this lone man dancing or lessons of of the man dancing. And effectively it's like, it shows this man in a field who is dancing by himself and surrounding him is, are these, like, is about probably a thousand people. And he's just dancing in this group of people. And he looks like a nut, right? And slowly, like, one person comes up and starts dancing with him. And all of a sudden, like, they become two lone nuts. And then a third person comes and starts dancing. And all of a sudden, it's like a group of people dancing. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, slowly and slowly, you start seeing more and more people come. And eventually the people who are sitting down, it gets to the point where the, the, the majority of people are up and all of a sudden people sitting down are in the minority so they feel compelled to join the, the majority. And eventually the video ends with like everyone getting up and dancing, all thousand people up there dancing. And that, that was like a really important lesson in like how to build a movement, how to you know, mobilise others around you. But the, the lesson wasn't the guy dancing and the really interesting part of this video was it wasn't the guy dancing, it was the first follower, the guy who, who followed him and actually came up and danced with him. And he was the one who, like, empowered the leader. Because in society and in, you know, culture, leaders are always hailed as these great visionaries and everyone wants to be a leader and everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and everyone wants to build. But this message was you don't always have to be that person. It can be equally, if not more important, to be the first follower, the person to find another person who is doing an incredible, inspiring thing and to be the person who supports them and to be the person who helps to build their movement. So I suppose like we'll be thinking about the narrative that we want to tell in these consultations and we'll be thinking about how can we you know, look at alternate ways of engaging young people, having them participate in discourses, having them participate in politics and conversations. That will be a goal. I think it'll be very dependent on where I'm going, what kind of a community I'm talking to, what issues are relevant to that particular community. Mm -hmm. Because the whole thing about this is 
we don't want to go into a place and say, this is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about education. We're going to be talking about mental health. Mm. We may know that they were the top issues from last year, but this is called the listening tour. The whole point of this tour is to go into a place and have young people lead the conversation, share what's most important to them, and then we direct the conversation from that. And we start to get more specific and tailored. But it, it is crucial that young people are the ones that are you know, initiating those conversations and that we're looking at the issues that they bring up. So yeah, we, we don't necessarily know where the conversations are going to lead all the time. but So we have to be fairly agile in that. But we, there are some messages and narratives that we're trying to get across, which is around that, the fact that young people are vital actors now, that they aren't just the future, that they're actually a really important part of, they can be leaders today, they're a really important part of society today. They can be empowered to create change if given the opportunities. So it's, you know, it's, it's an exercise in building not only the voices of young people, but also their confidence in their, having them know that they can, that their voice matters and that there are ways for them to share what's most important to them and, and create meaningful change. Given that we have an audience of young people want to try and change the world and understand all that, is there anything that you may have missed? And then are there any sort of books, film, mm. media, podcasts, anything in general yeah. that you'd recommend? So I think the message that I would leave is that be optimistic about the world. You know, a lot of the news that we get can be quite negative. A lot of the information that we get on a daily basis can present the world as this dark, gloomy place where a lot of bad things are happening, when in reality there's a lot of incredible things that are happening. But, you know, an example I used from my earlier work when I was working with Oak Tree on this campaign tackling extreme poverty was, you know, the issue is often framed as 10% of the popul global population live on less than $2 a day. 760 million people live on less than $2 a day. What often isn't talked about is that since 1990, 1.1 billion people have been lifted out of extreme poverty. That figure was 1.8 billion in 1990, and now it's 760 million. To me, that is a like a really incredible way to look at it. Like, yes, you need to recognise the gravity of a lot of these issues, and you need to recognise the importance of responding to those issues in your work, but never forget, I suppose, that we have made great strides and that the ability, like it can be really disheartening when you're really trying to push and push and push and you're not seeing much progress. If you look at it from a more macro perspective, you can start to see that, yes, history has been quite volatile, but the trend lines have generally been in, in the way of or in the direction of a more positive, empathetic and generous world and a more equal world. And we are moving in that direction slowly. We're getting there. But it will, you know, that future will require people to fight for it and people who believe in it. Another quick thing I would say is young people have done some incredible things. We are 50%, well, 40% of the world's population under 25, 50% under 30. We are often the most, the closest to a lot of the problems. 90% of young people live in developing countries. A lot of us affect, are affected by diseases around the world. Um, the youth unemployment rate is twice that of the standard unemployment rate in Australia and in countries like Malaysia and other countries in the Asia Pacific, it can be up to three or four times. We're being affected by a lot of these problems and we're rarely invited to be a, a part of the conversation around the solutions. So to me, I've, I think it's so important to keep pushing, to keep emphasising the importance of 
being engaged and having young people be engaged with these things and, and building their capacity and their belief in their own ability to actually affect change on these issues. You know, if you look at history, you look at young people have been at the centre of some of the some critical points in history, the US civil rights movement, transnational LGBTI movement, successive waves of feminism, environmental justice, labour, anti-war, immigrant rights, like you name it. And like to give a quick example, a 15-year-old called Claudette Calvin was arrested when she was 15 for refusing to get up off a bus during the civil rights movement. And that was nine months before Rosa Parks. And that was like a 15-year-old. And, you know, even if you look at the last 10 years, the last decade, young people have been at the centre of toppling brutal dictatorships in Tunisia and Egypt. And we found that some of the biggest tech companies, you know, Facebook, Google, Snapchat, we're doing some incredible things. So, like, I think if you're a young person, remember that you do have an ability to create ripples of change. And it doesn't have to be these huge actions. If you, you know, as I said before, notice a little problem in your local community that needs solving and you think you go about solving that problem, that's a form of creating change. If you're posting about something that you think is wrong on Facebook and you're building and following around that, that is a form of creating change. And if you're being there to comfort a friend struggling through mental illness, that is, again, a form of creating positive change or boycotting an unethically produced product, little things. Mm. You know, if enough of us are doing these things, mm. we will create larger ripples of change. Mm. But yeah, in terms of actual like books and stuff, I noticed yeah. you guys did that, so I made a little list. So okay. the, the, the one I was yeah. like talking about before, so there's these two guys called, I don't know actually what their names are, but they created this website, this like incredible community called Future Crunch. And their whole platform is essentially to promote positive news stories. And they went out, There's a, one of them is like a political economist, he's like a super smart guy, he's done a PhD. Another guy is a cancer researcher using like AI to target cancer cells or whatever. And like they created this website, like you can subscribe to their mailing list and every month they'll send you a like email with all of the great things that have happened in the last month. And you will be astounded by how much has actually happened. Like right. from research to like combating climate change to you know, solving economic inequality. There are things happening all around the world that we have, you never hear about in the mainstream media that actually, when you read them, you think, oh my God, like, I am getting a really distorted view of what, what is happening in the world right now because there are all these fantastic things that are happening. So I, I great doing some great things. I'd recommend in terms of, like, books is, um, like, I've read, like, they're very popular books now, but... I read them before they were kind of cool. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, like the Noah Yuval Harari books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sapiens, Homo Deus, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Really, really cool. Like they remind you that humanity has, has an incredibly rich and long history and that, you know, the chain is so, so long and we're just a link in the chain. And that it, it kind of reminds you that it takes a bit of the pressure off and, and you can kind of chill out a bit because you just think, you know, we, we do the best we can with, with the link of the chain that's allotted to us but ultimately you know we will have to pass the baton to future generations so we do the best we can when we can but you know if you don't solve poverty that's okay because you will have laid the groundwork for the next generation to do that as long as you have made some meaningful strides and you've been following well seeking opportunities to create positive change on things that you really believe in and are passionate about. I would read a book called Freakonomics, which is a really interesting way to look at data and look at, I suppose, the way our 
economic system, socioeconomic system, political system and society in general is structured and how data actually informs all of that. If you're interested in politics, I'd recommend checking out a book called March of Patriots, which is a deep dive into politics in Australia, specifically looking at the Keating Howard years. And it raises questions around ethics in politics and moral leadership and why we're kind of seeing that a little bit less of that in politics today and what we can do to, to combat that. I would also check out a book if you're interested called Thinking Fast and Slow, which again makes you stop and sort of think about how people interpret information, how we communicate with each other. It makes you question a lot of the, your preconceived or pre-held assumptions and ideas about the world, which can be really, really interesting. I, I like books that like challenge your thinking because I think that's really important for personal growth. 